This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today, we're going to be looking at something that's not an easy diagnosis, and it's also not something that's really straightforward to manage. That's abdominal compartment syndrome. It's not a condition that we're routinely thinking about, but you're probably going to see this at some point during your career. It's probably going to be in that boarding patient who might be technically admitted to the ICU, but they're just hanging out in the ED. Maybe they have septic shock, they've been over-resuscitated with lots of IV fluids, or you can see it in that sick, major trauma patients, or their burn patients. Either way, we can see this condition, and we need to know what to look for and what to do or how to manage these patients. Let's start with intra-abdominal hypertension. This is any increased pressure in the abdomen, but there's no end organ injury. This was first described in the 1800s, We didn't pay much attention to it until more recently. Now we're finding that intra-abdominal hypertension is pretty common in critically ill patients. Up to one half of patients admitted to the medical ICU will have intra-abdominal hypertension. These rates are even higher in patients in the trauma ICU. Abdominal compartment syndrome is different. This is intra-abdominal hypertension with a pressure over 20 millimeters of mercury plus end organ injury, and it's not just the abdominal organs that we have to worry about. Now, there are three different types of abdominal compartment syndrome. There's primary, secondary, and finally there's recurrent. Primary is due to some issue in the abdomen. It might be an intra-abdominal injury, an infection, maybe trauma. Secondary abdominal compartment syndrome is due to a condition outside of the abdomen. That would be like over-resuscitation for sepsis or burns. The final type is recurrent. That's when abdominal compartment syndrome occurs again after a prior episode of either primary or secondary abdominal compartment syndrome. There's a wide range of risk factors. There's no way you can remember these. We will have a table in the show notes for you, but the best way to think about these is to break them into four different categories. The first one is any condition where there's decreased compliance of the abdominal wall. That might be obesity, a prior abdominal surgery, intubation and they're mechanically ventilated, or they're a prone patient. The second category is any increased contents in the lumen of the intestines. That can be things like gastroparesis and ileus. The third category is increased content in the abdomen. That can be due to blood or ascites. The final or the fourth category is due to leaky blood vessels and large amounts of IV fluid that that patient has received. You can see this in patients with burns, sepsis, or pancreatitis. This fourth category with oversuscitation is going to be the one that we most commonly see. At baseline, the normal intra-abdominal compartment pressure is anywhere between 2 to 5 millimeters of mercury. 
In critically ill patients, it's going to be a bit higher, around 5 to 7. Patients with a BMI over 30 will have a pressure of 7 to 14 at baseline, and in those with a BMI over 40, that baseline pressure can be 9 to 16. Pregnancy can also increase the baseline intra-abdominal pressures. The mean pressure in the third trimester is around 14. Abdominal compartment syndrome is kind of similar to limb or orbital compartment syndrome. There's increased pressure in a fixed space that causes ischemia and end organ damage, but abdominal compartment syndrome is not quite the same. In abdominal compartment syndrome, it's not just the abdominal organs that are damaged. There are other systems involved, and that's mainly because the abdominal cavity is not a completely fixed space. When you look at what borders the abdominal cavity, you have the bony pelvis at the lower part, the abdominal wall on the anterior and posterior portions, and then you have the diaphragm up top. The diaphragm is just a thin muscle. It won't cause much resistance. That means all of that excess pressure from the abdomen is transferred up towards the chest and the head, and that's where we see other organ damage. The better way to think about abdominal compartment syndrome is more like polycompartment syndrome. That elevated intra-abdominal pressure damages other systems. Let's start with the GI effects because that's where everything starts. The increased pressure directly compresses the bowel. That will reduce blood flow and cause bowel wall edema. That ultimately can result in mesenteric ischemia and bacterial translocation into the bloodstream. The other major issue in the abdomen is the effects on the kidneys. That pressure can directly compress the kidneys, that can cause renal congestion, and it reduces the blood flow to the kidneys. All of that causes renal injury and decreased urinary output. This is actually one of the first findings of abdominal compartment syndrome. The kidney is kind of like a canary in a coal mine. There can also be liver impairment. Now, as that pressure is transduced upwards across the diaphragm, then you start to have pulmonary and cardiac issues. The increased intra-abdominal pressure reduces movement of the diaphragm. It doesn't allow the lungs to fully expand. That means there's reduced lung compliance and patients can become hypoxemic and hypercapnic. The increased pressure also reduces venous return to the heart. That's going to decrease cardiac output. There can be direct compression on the heart from that increased pressure. That will further decrease filling and also hurt contractility. With the vasculature, there's also elevated peripheral vascular resistance. That can cause further worsening of the organ injury. As that pressure continues to build and increases the interthoracic and central venous pressures, there's a decrease in cerebral venous outflow and there can be a disruption of the blood-brain barrier. That's going to raise intracranial pressure. Essentially, these patients enter this cycle of multi-organ failure, and that's why these patients have such a high mortality. Now, what about the history and exam? Well, these can vary, and many of these patients are going to be critically ill. 
one of the first findings is reduced urine output or even anuria. Awake patients may have increasing abdominal pain, they may have worsening abdominal distension, and they can also have trouble breathing. They may actually want to be standing to reduce pressure on the diaphragm, or they may have severe orthopnea. If there are increases in ICP, that patient could be significantly altered. If they're intubated, it makes the history even more challenging, but you need to focus on those risk factors like over-resuscitation. The exam is by no means sensitive. It ranges anywhere between 40 to 60%, but worsening abdominal distension and increased abdominal wall tension are specific. Those numbers are between 80 to 94% for their specificity. If they are present and the patient has risk factors, that's highly suggestive. But again, the problem is that they can't be used to exclude the diagnosis if they're not present. Measuring abdominal diameter and comparing different measurements also isn't reliable. One of the more helpful clues is refractory hypotension, especially if they have abdominal pain or distension. If the patient is intubated, there are some other clues beyond the reduced urine output. More than likely, you're going to have trouble ventilating the patient because of high intrathoracic pressures. The ventilator will probably be giving you high pressure alarms during the patient inhalations. Basically, think about this condition in the patient with a risk factor like high volume resuscitation or if they have refractory hypotension, they have worsening urine output or elevations in creatinine, or if they're intubated, you're having issues with ventilation and high pressure alarms. Labs can be helpful. You're looking for end organ injury. One of those first findings is a decrease in GFR and an elevated creatinine. You can also see elevated LFTs and a lactate. There have been a couple other markers that have been looked at, like D-lactate and intestinal fatty acid binding protein. These are basically markers of intestinal ischemia. The problem is that neither of these are available in the ED. There are some clues on imaging. Abdominal x-ray usually isn't going to be helpful, but you might find some free air. You can also see elevation of the diaphragm, an effusion, or a lobar collapse on chest x-ray. CT is going to provide you with a lot more information. You can see a collapsed IVC, an elevated diaphragm, free air, and a thickened abdominal wall. You can also see direct organ compression, and there can be narrowing of the blood vessels because of the increased pressures. There have been a couple signs that have been looked at for diagnosis using CT. These are the round belly sign, and the other one is the peritoneal to abdominal height ratio. We'll describe these more in the show notes, but basically they're looking for increased ratios that are suggestive of increased abdominal pressures. Really, if you think that patient has abdominal compartment syndrome, the key is measuring intra-abdominal pressures. There isn't a striker device that we can use in the ED where you can place it directly into the abdominal wall, but you can use something that we have and use every shift, 
that's a Foley catheter. You use this to measure a bladder pressure. This is a reliable and it's an easy way to measure the intra-abdominal pressure. You do need some other supplies like a pressure monitor, an arterial line setup. We'll have a figure and a table in the show notes. The key parts of checking the pressure is that you want to zero the pressure transducer at the bladder level in the mid-axillary line. You install a maximum of 25 milliliters of warm sterile saline into the bladder. Wait 30 seconds and then measure the pressure at end exhalation. You want to use warm saline because cold water will cause bladder detrusor contraction and you do need to wait 30 seconds once the sterile saline is in the bladder. Obviously, this is going to be very difficult on an awake patient, but it is possible if the patient has good pain control. The best scenario by far is a patient who is fully supine, they're intubated, and they're not fighting the ventilator. There are several issues with checking a bladder pressure. Pressures at baseline are going to be increased in obese patients. They're also higher at baseline if the patient has had prior pelvic or bladder radiation. Contraindications include a traumatic bladder injury, pelvic packing, and then obviously a cystectomy. We'll have a table in the show notes that walks you through how to check an intra-abdominal pressure with a bladder pressure. Let's say your bladder pressure comes back at greater than 20 and you have end organ injury based on some other testing. You have a diagnosis, but just like that diagnosis, treatment is challenging. The primary goals are to optimize abdominal perfusion pressure, target intravascular eumelemia, and remove any excess volume if you can, decompress the abdominal and the thoracic cavity, provide appropriate analgesia and sedation, and the last line of therapy is surgical decompression with fascial release. Let's start with optimizing abdominal perfusion pressure. This might be the first time you've heard of this. This is basically the abdominal compartment pressure subtracted from the mean arterial pressure. This is the pressure that perfuses the intra-abdominal organs. We're targeting a perfusion pressure over 60 millimeters of mercury. This means that the target map is 60 plus the abdominal compartment pressure. You do need to be careful with IV fluids. They're probably not the best bet for increasing the map. They won't stay in the vascular system, and ultimately, they're going to increase third spacing and further increase the intra-abdominal pressure. If they look dry or they're dehydrated, then fluids are fine. Again, you're aiming for a net even fluid balance, which is always easier said than done, so you'll probably have to start vasopressors to reach that MAP goal. Ultrasound also isn't super helpful here when it comes to assessing the IVC. That's probably going to be compressed because of the raised intra-abdominal pressure. Next, you want to decompress the abdomen if possible. Keep that patient supine. Raising the head of the bed by 30 to 40 degrees will increase intra-abdominal pressures. If there's ascites, perform a paracentesis and remove as much as you can. Also place an NG or an orogastric tube. Get a Foley 
and decompress the bladder. You can also give a prokinetic agent like metoclopramide. If there's a significant burn over the abdomen that's causing raised intra-abdominal pressures, then you'll need to perform an escharotomy. Your ICU colleagues may also try to reduce colonic distension with rectal tube drainage, a suppository, or neostigmine. If there's a large pleural fusion, you'll want to drain that to decompress the thorax. If the patient is not intubated, try to avoid positive pressure ventilation or intubation. Normally, the thorax is a negative pressure system, but once you intubate the patient, it turns it into a positive pressure system, which will increase abdominal pressures. If they're already intubated, try to reduce PEEP and plateau pressures. Analgesia and sedation are major steps. You need to get these on board as fast as you can and get the patient comfortable. If the patient is intubated, you can think about paralysis that will increase abdominal wall compliance and reduce pressures, but the data don't demonstrate long-term improved outcomes. The treatment of last resort is surgical decompression, and it is the definitive therapy if other measures don't work. This will improve patient cardiovascular and renal function. It will also improve respiratory function. If the medical options don't work, surgical decompression should be performed within four days of diagnosis. Studies show that decompression after four days is associated with worse outcomes. Either way, speak with your surgeon early with these patients. In summary, abdominal compartment syndrome is due to increased intra-abdominal pressures with end-organ injury. There are four primary causes. First, diminished abdominal wall compliance. Second, increased abdominal contents. Third, increased intraluminal contents. And finally, capillary leak or excess fluid resuscitation. This isn't your normal compartment syndrome. That pressure can reach the thorax and the head, so it's more of a polycompartment syndrome picture. History and exam can provide you some clues like reduced urinary output, but think about this disease in the sick patient with abdominal distension, refractory hypotension, oliguria, and trouble with ventilation. To diagnose it, you need to check a bladder pressure. The major goals of therapy are to optimize abdominal perfusion pressure, target intravascular euvolemia, decompress the abdominal and thoracic cavity if you can, provide appropriate analgesia and sedation, and then finally surgical decompression with fascial release. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.